So this morning in our sermon series on David, uh, we are going to be talking about David's choice to worship, even when there's tons of confusion and resistance. And so that's what today's sermon is about. So before we do anything else, we should pray, yes? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for the smell of barbecue. This feels like a little taste of heaven. I pray protection over this space and time now in Jesus' name. Lord, we bind up and mute anything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to interfere with this time. Open our ears and our hearts to you, Jesus. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to convict us, to change us, to renew us. We need you, Lord. We love you, Lord. In your precious name we pray, and all God's chosen, beloved, worthy, forgiven, beloved disciples said, Amen. Amen. So last week we read about how everyone died. Uh, remember, we're in David's story, and, and right before David becomes king, uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul, and his son, who was David's best friend, Jonathan, uh, and most of the army die in a battle with the Philistines. They lose, and they lose bad. And David, meanwhile, is about 100 miles south uh, of the battle, and he's just defeated Isis Jr., the Amalekites, and a member of Isis Jr. comes and tells him about King Saul's death. Um, And this is the heart of last week's message, that King Saul died by his own hand when he fell on his own sword, trying to avoid humiliation after a lifetime of living apart from God. And the result of that is that all of his people became scattered and destroyed. Our true king, Jesus, died for all of us who are scattered, for all of us whose lives have been destroyed by other people and our own decisions. How? He chose to be humiliated. Jesus chose to be humiliated so that you and I might be forgiven and loved and adopted into his family, that heaven may start now and last for all eternity. Amen? Amen. You are not alone. That's last week's message. So five years pass after King Saul's death, and Saul's son and his general... um, are both murdered in acts of revenge, much to the anger of David. And David can start to see that based on his own past mistakes of initiating violence, that violence is now begetting violence and things are starting to spin out of control. And so David wants to establish a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom in which God is placed first in his heart, a kingdom in which God is placed first in his people's hearts, A kingdom where God is at the center of everything. That sounds like a good plan, right? Isn't that what you want for your kids and your grandkids and your school and your work? Some of you haven't said yes. You're not sure. Maybe. Does that mean we don't get Netflix? I don't know. So how do we do this, right? How do we we put God first in our hearts and in our family and friends' hearts and that God would be at the center of everything that we do. This passage is going to show us how. So are you ready? Let's start reading together 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
Are you excited this morning? I'm excited this morning. Here we go. Starting in verse 2. David and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. The name of the Lord Almighty. Now, hold on just for a second. The ark of God. You remember the ark of the covenant, right? The ark of God, which is called by the name. They didn't name God. They didn't say his name, Yahweh. So what they did is that in order to, to, to keep God's name sacred, lest their unclean lips utter it, they would say Hashem. Say that with me. Hashem. Hashem just means the name in Hebrew. So if you ever go to an Orthodox Jewish community, they will talk about God as Hashem, which means the name. Does that make sense? Okay. Who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark? Verse 3, read with me. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Um, So the ark had been placed in the hometown of Saul's son, Abinadab. King Saul, the first who just died five years previously, five chapters ago, his son, Abinadab, he had four sons. Jonathan was one of them. Abinadab was the oldest. The ark ended up in Abinadab's hometown, and Abinadab had two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. So Huzzah and Ohio um, had the ark, and uh, they were caretakers of the ark. Here it is. This is what the ark looked like. Uh, The only problem is that uh, Huzzah and Ohio... uh, or maybe it's Oahu, I don't know. They were, they were not priests. They had no idea how to take care of the ark. Now, um, remember that the Ark of the Covenant was like a miniature holy of holies. It's this specific thing, a place where God's power and presence dwelt. Like a live electrical wire or a nuclear generator, the ark was humming with God's presence and power. So you had to handle the ark very carefully, or it would not go well with you. Uh, Just ask the Philistines who captured the ark in 1 Samuel 6. Um, They capture the ark. They move it to one town. Everybody in the town gets tumors all over their body, like instantly, like as though it's radioactive, right? It's Chernobyl. And they think, we got to get this out of here. So then they move it to another town, and everybody the same day gets, like everybody in the town gets hemorrhoids. I'm not kidding. It's in the Hebrew. Can you imagine? This thing needs to go now, right? We, we don't have a medicine for this. This is bad, right? And all the women are like, that's nothing, right? So the guys are like, we got to take care of this, right? So they move it again to the third time. The third time they move it, everybody, literally, the word is death panic. Everybody's having an anxiety attack in this Philistine town. Finally, the Philistine rulers are like, we got to get this thing out of here. So they put it on a cart. They put all sorts of offerings on it, gold and whatnot, and they attach two cows to it, and they slap the cow's butts, and away it goes, and it land, the cows stop in Judah, right, which is just um, in the region of Israel. And there, uh, the Levites, the priests, found it, and they decide, uh, well, where is this going to go? And Saul goes, <clears throat> um, my son has an opening in his house for the ark. And so they brought it to Abinadab's house on the cart. Now, Abinadab's kids, Huzzah 
in Oahu had seen the ark arrive on a cart. And they assumed, therefore, that it should be transported on a cart. That's what we do in life, right? What is given to us by our parents, our grandparents, we just assume that's the way it is, and so we mimic it. If they had read the book of Numbers in chapter 4, they would have known something very important about how to handle the objects that are in the tent of meeting or the Holy of Holies. They would have known, number one, priests only handle holy objects. Number two, you cover holy objects. Number three, you don't put the ark on a cart like Indiana Jones and Sala. You carry it on the... No, no, back, no, wrong. (laughs) Carry it on the poles. You don't touch the ark. Say that with me. Don't touch the ark. You don't look inside the ark. Now, John... You don't look inside the, if you look inside the ark, bad things happen to you, right? If you're not familiar with this historical event, it happened in 1939. Anyways, here we go. With that ominous background, let's read what happens next. Are you ready? Read with me. Verse 4. So, Huzzah and Oahu, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart, the ark of God on it, and Oahu was walking in front of it. Can you picture it? Right? Oahu's in front. Huzzah's right next to it. Right? They're there. The the ark is going from where it is in Judah up the hill to Jerusalem. Verse 5. Read with me. David and all Israel with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Full band, y'all. Right? Playing bass. Got the drums, castanets. Right? (laughs) Like the whole nine yards, right? It's awesome. Can you picture it? Right? I mean, everybody is excited. The first time the ark is coming home in 20 years. Um, The ark is returning to the capital of Israel for the first time. And for the first time in history, that capital is called Jerusalem. Never before had the ark been in the capital. And never before had the capital been Jerusalem. Big deal. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, so that's just a guy named Nacon. He has a threshing floor. He's, he's, he's a wheat farmer. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. So Nacon had not paved his own street in front of his house. He had not kept up his lawn. The ox stumbles into a hole and falls twisting the yoke around its neck. Now, when a 1,500-pound animal falls down and twists its yoke, then that cart behind it is going to twist as well. And Uzzah is right next to this cart. And just reaction, right? He's like, do I let the ark fall and break and shatter? And then, right, everybody's going to be looking at me. He doesn't even think about it. He just puts his hands out and pushes the ark back and rights the cart again. Everybody say, phew. Verse 7. The Lord's anger, read this with me. The Lord's anger burnt. Wait, wait. Come on. Don't just, no, say burned like, yeah, like you're from the south, right? The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. (laughs) What? What is this? 
Uzzah dies. Why? Uh, uh, well, they, whoever's writing this, uh, which are the priests and the Levites and the scribes, they, they have one explanation, which is that God killed Uzzah. God must have done this. Now, you and I, um, with a little bit of perspective, might say something different. We might say that if you climb up on a ladder to the high power lines, which have 7,200 volts of electricity traveling through them uh, on, these main, on these main lines on arteries, and you grab a hold of that wire, um, uh, is it 2,000 volts? With two hands. Um, what's going to happen to you? Right. You, you're you're going to get barbecued, right? Now, has God killed you? We would say no. We would say electricity has killed you, or maybe Darwin has killed you. Um, but we wouldn't say that, that God has killed you. Um, but notice that the writers here are pretty convinced that God has done this, and they're not the only ones. Verse 8, then, da- verse eight, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Huzzah. And to this day, that place is called, read this with me. David was like, come on, God, really? Like, David can't understand it. And so they named the place Perez Huzzah. Now, Perez is an interesting Hebrew word. It literally means bursting or exploding. So there's two commentaries, two commenta- there's two interpretations, both of which are correct technically, but um, they think, well, this is where God's anger burst out against Huzzah. But literally, it could also be translated as, this is the place where Huzzah exploded. That'd be a bad day. Like, why was David furious at God? Well, Huzzah blows up, right? And they're like, what the heck? He just tried to help the cart. Um, So clearly, he's mad about that. But it, it felt so arbitrary, right? And to make matters worse, the band stopped playing as everybody has gone from joy to horror in a split second. I mean, can you imagine if we're worshiping up here, right? And April comes up to do the announcements and then she explodes? Like that would really put a damper on today's worship service, wouldn't it? Don't spontaneously combust, right? Or explode in any way. Um, Not only that... Everybody knew that David was going to go get the ark, right? So there's a massive crowd in Jerusalem waiting for David to return. And when they all walk in, like PTSD traumatized with Huzzah all over them, right? Everybody's like, what the heck happened? And then what does everybody think about the new young king? Oh, David, you know, he can't do this. You know, I, oh, he touched the ark? Oh, come on. You know I mean? Like rookie mistake, right? So... So it's a bad day. So what does David do? Well, David goes back to Jerusalem, and he studies scripture for three months. He asks for help. He asks for guidance. um, And he learns that he has made a really serious mistake. God hadn't killed Uzzah. It was David's job as king to show Uzzah what to do. So you need to understand something really important here. We often think that the ark is sort of like the only powerful thing or gift that God has given his people, and it's not. It's not even close. Like, God has given you so many powerful gifts. You need to understand this. 
Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. And each of them come with instructions that are found in Scripture and also mentors who know how to use these powerful gifts, all of which are there so that you can use the powerful gifts God has given you to build something beautiful rather than to blow up your life. For example, your money is a super powerful gift. Say amen. Amen. That means I agree in Aramaic. Do you agree? Do you agree that your money is a powerful gift? So scripture teaches you how to use it wisely, to save, to avoid debt at all costs, to live with restraint now so that you can live incredibly generous in the years to come, to give right now a tithe to help God's kingdom, to use, see your money as a tool to build something beautiful rather than a tool to make yourself feel less pain. That's all in scripture. Now, what do, what do we do? Well, we're just like Uzzah, right? The ark showed up on a cart, which must means it goes out on a cart. So whatever happens, we just assume that's what you should do. So then we think, well, how, how did my parents or how do my friends use their money, right? In my household, money was chaos. Money was stress. Money was bounce checks all the time. Money was writing checks in red ink so that the bank had to process them by hand. So that way, you could cover your account because you never quite had enough. And then it was credit cards and credit card debt. And it was not, there was no plan. There was no budget. It was just fly by the seat of your pants uh, and hope it all works out. And so that's what April and I did for the first couple of years of our marriage. And then we finally realized that this chaos is insane. And so many of us have had so many problems with money and, it's, and the problems with money have blown up areas of our life. Our peace has been blown up. Our, our, our relationships, our marriages, our businesses, they get blown up because we don't know how to use this powerful tool well. And we don't ask for help. And we don't, we don't talk to the people that we know that are do well. We just try and figure it out by ourselves. You can say the same thing about your sexuality, your talents, your marriage, your parenting, your body, the list goes on and on and on. God hands us incredibly powerful tools, gifts, gifts which can build and create the most beautiful life that you can ever imagine. And, and, and God trusts you. God believes in you. He gives you these tools. Amen? Amen. And here's the awesome thing about God. The gifts that God gives you, he doesn't just say, like if, if you mess up, he doesn't like, uh, no more. You don't get a body. You're done. Like he keeps on giving you chances, an endless amount of chances until the day you die to get it right. So let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be wise? Wouldn't it make the most sense if you took a moment like David to learn how to use the powerful gifts that God has given you? Two people have said yes. Wouldn't that be wise? Wouldn't that be smart? To take a step back like, oh, no, I made a mistake. I blew somebody up. For David, that's literally what happened, right? 
But you could look at your life and you say, oh my gosh, man, I don't know how to use my sexuality very well because it's not working out here and here. So what if I were to take a step back and actually consult the instruction manual and talk to some mentors about how it does it right so that I don't keep on making the same mistakes over and over again? Doesn't that sound logical and reasonable and rational and wise? <gasps> say yes. Did you know that you have a staff? You're like the characters in Downton Abbey. <laughs> you have a staff? I, I belong to you. Our whole staff belongs to you. You have a staff to help you in every area of your life, if you want. You can take advantage of your staff. You just call up your staff and you say, I would like you to do something. And we say, oh, what? What can I do? You say jump. I say how high. <laughs> I got the chance to build a timber frame pavilion in my backyard in Los Osos. Here it is. Really fun. This is before we moved to Aurora Grande a couple years ago. It was great. It was amazing. I had lots of help. Lots of carpenters who knew way more than I did about buildings. Next slide, John. And a really, really pretty design. And they helped me with it. And then they helped me construct it. It was great. And one day, my friend Jeff, who was the general contractor, called me and said, Andy, I got a guy who just got out of jail, Aaron. He really needs to work a couple of days. And he knows what he's doing. Um, he's done this work before. Could he help you out on the project? And, and more importantly, I think it'd be really good for Aaron to like get to work, but also just to be around you. Could, could you do that for me, Pastor? I love it. The general contractor calls me to ask him. I'm like, OK, yeah, sure. You know. Uh, so Aaron came over. And that day, we were putting up the massive support beams, 18 feet in the air, to, to brace the, the ridge roof beam. So, so you can see this. You can see the diagonal um, support beams that go up here and to the right. The ridge beam is the very, that beam at the very top, the peak of the roof. And the support beam is that diagonal piece that goes up. Now, these beams are, are um, six by eight beams, so six inches by eight inches. And that's uh, at 18 feet in the air. And so Aaron came to the job super excited. That very morning, on the way to the job, he bought a beam saw. Here's a picture of a beam saw. A beam saw is a massive handheld saw with a 12-inch blade of spinning death on it. And he said, I've always wanted to use one of these, so I bought it this morning. And I was surprised and happy for Aaron and also terrified him because the saw is a beast. Um, and so we were working to cut these big support beams, and I was just with Aaron. Um, I knew how to do all this, but I'm just watching Aaron do it. And the first cut that Aaron makes, he curses, and he says, I just cut it an inch too short. I said, no problem. We got other beams. And so he pulls up another beam, and he does the layouts and the measurements, and then he cuts it, one which is a normal cut, and he goes over here, and he does a measurement, and he cuts it again, and he swears again, and he says, now I've cut it two inches too short. And I looked around, and we had one more beam left. And I said, well, we got one more try. It's not that big of a deal. And, uh, 
And this time we worked together on the cut. So we did the layout and we did the math. And then Aaron took the, his saw. Here's a circular saw. This is a small circular saw. This has a, an eight inch blade on it. Um, and, and so imagine that, that it's a 12 inch blade, which is this side, six inches down here, massive. And he takes this guard. All circular saws have a guard on the bottom for good reason. And that way, when you're done with your cut, if you were to go on something, right, it, it protects you. So he takes this guard, and he sticks a piece of wood in here to pin the guard back. And I look at Aaron, and I say, um, Aaron, that's extremely dangerous. If you do that, you're going to cut your fingers off. And Aaron said, it's OK. This is how I always do it. And I said, until you cut your fingers off. And then Aaron made his cut. And his fingers were still on his hand. And he looks at me, and he goes, see, I got this. And then he set the saw down on my gorgeous redwood, newly sanded and stained Conhart redwood 2 by 12 deck. And the saw dug into the deck because it was still spinning and shot off at 20 miles an hour until the cord unplugged and gouged this massive gouge in my deck. And Aaron looked at the really bad damage, and then he looked at me, and I looked at my mangled, gorgeous deck, and I looked at Aaron, and it was, it was, a, it was a magical moment for me. Uh, and I smiled at Aaron. And I looked at him, and I said, it's OK. And then we looked at his cut, and he had cut the beam too short again. Aaron did not come back to the job site the next day. I didn't fire him. I didn't fire him. Why did Aaron not come back to the job site the next day? It's because he felt ashamed, and he felt condemned, and he didn't want to face me. Now, from me, all he got was kindness and mercy and love. See, what ends up happening is that when you end up misusing the powerful tools that God has given you, you will make mistakes. And then how will you feel about yourself when you make mistakes? You'll feel like Aaron. You're like, I messed up. And the thing about it is that we don't just make one mistake. We make mistake after mistake after mistake when we're misusing a tool. And then we start to believe the lies. There's something bad about me. There's something off about me. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm, I'm I, like, I can't, I, I, I'll never amount up. I might as well just give up. I'm done. And when you start to believe that lie, then you don't come back. Because it's almost like it's too hard to receive mercy and kindness and love. See, I, I would have loved to re-sand and re-stain that deck with Aaron, because it turned out really well. Like, it turned out really well. And I would have loved to put up those two beams, because even though both of them were two inches too short, they looked really, really great. Next picture. And, and when the project was all done and said, I never, ever thought about the beams being two inches too short. The only thing I thought about was that Aaron didn't get to see the finished product. See, all of us have been Aaron or Uzzah in our lives. We've blown up part of our lives. 
We haven't taken the time to use the powerful tool that God has given us or that gift that God has given us. We've just mimicked what we've received, good or bad, and hope that it has worked out. And here is what I need you to hear this morning. No matter how you've used the powerful gifts that God has given you in your life, God is not mad or disappointed with you when you've messed it up. God is not mad or disappointed with you when you've messed it up. God wants you to learn how to build something gorgeous and beautiful and life-giving with these powerful gifts that he's given you. And so he's going to give you, keep on giving you opportunities for you to learn more and more and more about how to use these powerful gifts that God has for you for the blessing of your family, your life, your community, your church, this world. So don't give up. Don't leave the job site. Don't isolate. Stay engaged. So meanwhile, the ark is now 10 feet from where it nearly fell over, sitting in a barn. The purpose of the ark is to be a blessing. Why? Well, because it's filled with God's presence. And wherever God is, that's where blessing is, right? So it's filled with life, literally. Manna from the wilderness is sitting in a jar in the ark. And it's filled with promises of God's goodness. The Ten Commandments are sitting in the ark. That's the ultimate guide. It's the ultimate cheat code on how to move from slavery to freedom. That's the Ten Commandments. And so what happens to this little farm where this radioactive nuclear generator called the ark is sitting? The little farm explodes with life. Bumper crops. Like every egg is a double yoker. <laughs> right? Like it's unbelievable. This little tiny farm starts to explode with life because the ark is sitting in it. And all of a sudden, the neighbors are, are there, and the farmer can't believe it, and he's snapping pictures and upgrading his Instagram feed. And finally, one, somebody from the, from the Capitol says, oh my gosh, look, this is trending on Twitter now. And, and the, the, the farm, it's, it's exploding for life. And so David says, oh, it's not a curse. It's actually a blessing. Verse 11, read with me. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Can you imagine signing your checks, Obed-Edom, the Gittite? <laughs> and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. With what? David had learned something. The ark isn't a curse. Used properly, it brings incredibly, incredible life. And this is how God has ordered all the powerful gifts that he has given us. The gifts that God has given you, when they are used properly, they, you, they bring incredible life. Say amen. amen. So David, having learned what to do, puts a plan together to bring the ark home. Verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, ooh, what did David learn? You don't put it on a cart, you carry it, right? And had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fat calf. That's not every six steps, that's just the first six steps, right? 
We're going to do a little work, and then we're going to, the seventh set step is going to be sacrifice to remind us that God is here, present with us. Um, our sins are forgiven, and now we can walk forward, cleanse, forgiven, everything's fine. So David is covering all of his bases here, and David is wearing a linen ephod. What's that? That's his tidy whities Literally. It's just this garment here. So David's in his tidy whities and what is he doing? Wearing a linen ephod, David was before the Lord with all his might. He's doing the moonwalk, right? He's doing the, the running man. He's doing the lawnmower, right? He's got it all, right? While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. Can you picture it? From this little town all the way up to Jerusalem, David is dancing in his underwear before it. Everybody is, I mean, they're blasting trumpets, which would be a shofar, a ram's horn, which would be a symbol of freedom. And everybody is excited the ark is finally coming home. Why is David worshiping? Why is he dancing his heart out? Because now, finally, God's very presence is going to be at the, the center of David's life in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be much more than a city or a capital. It's going to be the hinge point between heaven and earth, the place where people will journey to experience God's presence and love and forgiveness. When you go to Jerusalem, it would be a taste of heaven right here on earth. You picking up what I'm putting down? And David, the forgotten and discarded shepherd boy who has been chosen by God Almighty to be the king of, the, of, of his people, he leads Israel in worship and in battle and in life. And David is absolutely overjoyed. And why is he naked except his tidy whities Because every other king, when they would travel before a procession, you know what they would be wearing? Their best robes and their armor and their sword and their crown, and they would be on a steed full of majesty and glory. And what does David do? He strips every single thing off of himself so that he would never be accused of boasting in himself, but only giving glory and boasting in God. As the ark enters the city, King Saul, who had died five years previously, his daughter, Michal, is David's first wife. Now, previous chapters, you would have read that Michal was reunited with David, except when she shows up, it's been 10 years, and David's got now four other wives and 11 kids. Can you imagine? You're separated from your beloved for 11 years, and you're like, I wonder how he's doing. And you show up to his house, and he's got four wives and 11 children. And we're like, oh, OK. Yeah, I see how this works. You didn't wait for me. All right, I, I get it. So the last time that we met McCall, she was staring out a window because she had just helped David um, escape out that window. And now the, the next scene is this. Um, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Isn't that great cinematography? 
you left McCall at a window, and now you see her at a window again. And this time, she's not watching David with a forlorn heart. Run, Forrest, run, right? She's not doing that. What is she saying? And when she saw... Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. When she saw... Oh. See, David has been mentioned a lot, but not King David. Because who's McCall's dad? And what was he? And who's the king now? Ooh. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, that's good. Yeah. Everybody say, dun, 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 dun. Now, McCall had learned from her dad, King Saul, that worship is kind of irrelevant. The way that you get stuff done in King Saul's world and therefore in McCall's world is the way that you get stuff done is that you just, you take what you want. You manipulate people for what you need. Like, if you want to pray, then ask God to bless your plans. But otherwise, just do what you need to do. That's what McCall had learned from her dad. Can anybody relate? McCall doesn't even have a category in her mind for worship. All she sees is David, mostly naked, making a fool of himself, and she gets jealous. And when she speaks to David, it's dripping with sarcasm. Verse 20, oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. This is like the most sarcastic statement in all of the Bible. It's, it's pretty remarkable. She really is spreading the mayonnaise thick right now. But David isn't going to take the bait. You see, David knows all about McCall and Saul. What was King Saul's greatest fear? Why did King Saul want to kill David all the time? Why? It's because Saul didn't want to be embarrassed. He didn't want to lose face. He didn't want to have someone speak or think poorly of him. And the moment that David arrives on the scene, they make up a, a, a pop song on 104.5 that plays incessantly, right? Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. And so from the very get-go, Saul's reputation has been diminished, tarnished, and David's has been elevated, and Saul doesn't want to do any, He doesn't want ever that to happen. And so what was his greatest, that was his greatest fear, and Saul's greatest failure was to actually listen to God and put him first in his life. So what did Saul do with the greatest, most powerful gifts that God gave him? Well, instead of using the gift of kingship to listen to God, to protect or to bless others, what he did is that he used the gift of his kingship to enlarge his own ego, demanding that everyone love him all the time. I did that with my marriage. And I did that with my leadership position here. As long as everybody likes me. As long as she always loves me. As long as nobody ever criticizes me, I'll be okay. But what does David do? See, David risks everything. The greatest fears of Saul, David faces head on. And what he does for the first time in Israel's history 
is, is he worships before his people. He leads his people in worship. Because worship is the most powerful gift that we've been given by God, except his, only excluding his very presence. Worship destroys spiritual strongholds in your heart. Worship silences the enemy, right? What did Saul need to do when he's being harassed by the evil spirit? He needed David to worship. Then, then there was spiritual covering and protection. Worship wins battles. I mean, they walked around Jericho and worshiped, and the walls came tumbling down. Gather any group of people together and worship, and someone will be set free. Come to the worship night on the 25th. That's a Tuesday, by the way. Come to there on the 25th. Every single time we have one of these worship nights, miracles happen. Literally every time. Prophetic words are given. Healing takes place emotionally, physically, relationally. It's amazing. And, and what happens in worship is that there's a moment, I don't know if you know this on Sunday mornings, but the first thing that we do when you get to worship on a Sunday morning, if you're like me, is you're like, I'm singing this song, this is amazingly high for the morning. <clears throat> I can't sing. And then I love it, my friends who are sitting next to me, they always sing in monotone, right? And so then you start noticing the people singing around you next to you. And then you notice the person's breath behind you. And then you notice your own breath. And by the second time, then second song, then you're aware of like, wait a minute, I'm singing. Why am I singing? I'm singing to who, to what? And then a lyric or a word or a phrase will catch you. And all of a sudden, your heart will quicken. And then what happens? By the third song, you know what you have the chance to do? Instead of being aware of yourself or your hands or what do you do with your body or the fact that you want to sit down or the, the guitar is out of tune, it wasn't, Matt. Um, uh, or that, I mean, whatever it is that you're thinking about, all of a sudden by the third song, what you actually start doing is that you actually start singing the words to Jesus. And when that happens, it happened today and you split the sea so I could walk right through it. Did you feel it this morning? At that moment, we started singing to Jesus as a corporate whole, and the whole room changed. The Holy Spirit became so powerful, palpable, tangible, present, pal palpable, right? And then that last song, Jesus paid it all, then we sang it all to him. That's what happens in worship. And when we worship, when any group of people worships together, things happen. Powerful things happen. But, of course, McCall doesn't see any of this. This poor woman is filled with anger and resentment and suspicion and jealousy. And that's what comes pouring out of her. And what is David's response? David retorted to McCall, I was dancing before the Lord, not the slave girls. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel and the people of the Lord, so I, I celebrate before the Lord. And yes, read this with me. Yes, I am willing to look even more undignified than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Oh, man. You know what I wish? I wish that you and I could have seen David dancing when David saw what Jesus did for you and me. 
because Jesus, the true king, the king of kings, was stripped naked before the nation of Israel. And he didn't dance through the streets. He was whipped through the streets as he carried the instrument of his own death. He was spit upon and mocked. And when he was, when he entered the city, or actually left the city, he wasn't celebrated, but he was nailed to a cross, mocked even when he was suffered. And what was Jesus' response? He didn't curse them. He didn't blow them up. He forgave them. What none of them could see at that moment on the cross was that they were staring at the actual Ark of the Covenant. They were staring at the person who in his very body held all of the promises of God to bring slaves into free people. That in his very body was life and that life, his blood, was pouring out to forgive their sins even as they were killing him. See, Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. And when you touch him, your life doesn't burst or blow up and and die. It, It bursts forth with life because he's your mediator, your redeemer, your creator, your savior. And he's why we worship. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you and you alone. You split the sea so we could walk right through it. You've delivered us from fear and shame and resentment. And we know, Lord, that when we worship you, we know, Lord, that when we actually consult others to learn how to use the powerful gifts that you've given us, when we listen and follow your word, that life bursts forth in every area of our life. And so, Lord Jesus, we choose this today to listen to you, to follow you, to love you, to adore you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand for the benediction?